You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. The reason why we know the tongue is so powerful is because only a perfect man can bridle his tongue. Look at verse 2 again. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a fully mature man. He's been brought to completion in his character, in other words. Able to bridle the whole body as well. His entire soma, his body. If one could just control his tongue, it would prove how mature he is already. It would show how far advanced in sanctification he was. The book of James tells you today that the perfect person has complete control over his or her tongue. Complete control. That means every word that would fall out of your mouth would be loving and full of life and truth. Does that describe you? It's unlikely, since every person on earth is a sinner. Only Jesus is perfect, so only he has control over his tongue. Pastor Tom will talk with you today about how to begin reigning in that piece of flesh and how you can use it for the good of others. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he continues his message, wielding your tongue for good or for ill. Well, I want to ask you how you did this past week following yourself around. Did you take the challenge? Did you follow yourself around with a little notebook to see what you were sounding like this past week? Did you take notes on your words? Why did I say that? Oh my goodness, how did that come out of my mouth? Jot that down, make a little note. This is a continuation from last week if you're wondering what I'm talking about. Um, We are evaluating our tongues because the Holy Spirit has us in James 3 and this is where we need to evaluate our tongues can't get to all that we need to talk about with our tongues in one message. Um, today we're going to be continuing with the, the discussion of the power of the tongue. But uh, as you took an inventory of your tongue, did you find where it's failing or did you already know that? Was your conscience already informed that, well, it's this area in which I know that my tongue fails or should I say flails about? Maybe, as Pastor Allen already prayed it's, um, or mentioned, it's about hurtful speech. You're trying to defend yourself, but not realizing in defending yourself, you're attacking others. You're um, wishing things would be better, but what's coming out of your mouth is really a lot of complaining against the Lord. You wish more would recognize the things that you do, but what you don't realize is that your tone and your words are belittling of others. There might even be something worse, slander. And uh, you didn't realize it was slander, but that's what came out of your mouth. Or dishonesty. You thought maybe it shaded a little bit, but if you're honest, you realize what came out of your mouth this past week was dishonesty. Maybe sharp criticism that comes from a desire to see your children or someone at work do better, perform better, but it just comes out as sharp criticism. So did you follow yourself around? I know you did. But were you listening to yourself and to your speech. I know I took some time to do that as well. Did you listen to what came out of that mouth, the the labouche as the French call it? It's a powerful organ there in in your body, is it not? We learned last time at the end, we just started talking about this and I'll kind of rehearse this, that silence is golden. Silence is golden, but not always. Silence itself cannot be what tames the tongue. Silence is not going to transform your speech into something that pleases God. It's a start in sanctification. It's not a finisher. 
David does affirm in Psalm 39, 1, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, appropriate for today, while the wicked are before me. We already read in James 1, 19, this you know, beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear and what? Slow to speak and slow to get angry. Sometimes when we're too quick to speak, the, the anger comes along with that. So we do need restraint particularly when we're in the presence of enemies. If you're in the presence of someone who's criticizing you, if you're in the presence of someone who's mocking you, if you're in the presence of someone that you know is opposed to your Christian faith, that's gonna be a harder time for you to really restrain your lips. And so David talks about that there. In fact, I'll give you some more in terms of restraint. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. Wow, I mean, hasty with words gets you in a lot of trouble. A fool is better off than you. So there's a lot of impetus and rationale in Scripture to grab control of your tongue. By the way, you can't really grab control of anybody else's tongue. That'd be kind of gross, wouldn't it? You have to grab control of your own tongue and deal with your own tongue. So it's a very personal application. We have all been in positions before where we did not grab control of our tongues and we had to eat our words instead, as we say. But still, the very best approach is not silence, but to replace worthless words, words that came out too quickly, they were maybe too interested in humor, too interested in being cool, too interested in saying something popular, replacing those words with words that would actually do something beneficial with the people that are around us. I think many of you sell yourself short in terms of how important your tongue is. You think of, in terms of the teachers, we already dealt with that, politicians, leaders in society, and you think like, well, they have to control their tongues, but not me, nobody listens to me. Actually, there are more people that listen to you than you realize, and more would listen to you as your tongue becomes what? Wiser, right? So think about that. Transform the mouth as an instrument. Eliminating all the stench and foul smell that comes out of the mouth at times and then exude that godly aroma of a wonderful speech. We mentioned Ephesians 4.29 as this proper strategy for the mouth. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. In other words, if you'd like to have some unwholesome words and a lot of good words, the standard is no, let's, let's eliminate all of the unwholesome or actually that word means foul kind of words from your mouth. And then it has the but side to it, but only such a word as is good for edification. You know what edification is, right? You're gonna build people up in their faith, their confidence in God, their, their Christian practice. And then it adds this, according to the need of the moment. Sometimes what you would say would be very good and very helpful in certain settings, but not this setting. So you have to do more than think of general edifying words. You have to think, what is my brother or sister going through? What do they need to hear right now? Because what might be general and good and helpful for people in certain situations, in other words, it's not an unwholesome word, is not actually all that helpful for this person right now. You can't just memorize a verse and indiscriminately use the sword of God. You have to become skilled in your use of it. That's the difference between just being biblical and loud and being wise in the use of Scripture for different people. According to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
Take off all the foul, unwholesome, rotten words. Put on edifying words, words which build up. That, by the way, means you're going to have to be thinking about someone besides yourself because when you think just about yourself, that's when all of the hurtful language comes out. But if you're thinking about other people, loving other people, praying for other people, understand what God is trying to do with other people, that really helps in your mind. And then, of course, that drives your tongue. We'll be talking more about that. This verse, I think, challenges us to always be asking, what is the need of those who are standing before me? What can I say that would be godly advice? And if I haven't figured it out yet, yeah, then silence is golden at that spot, you see? By the way, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 echoes Ephesians 4 with this. Let your speech always be with grace. In other words, you've received grace from God. Let that transform the way you think and then think, how can my tongue now express that grace to other people? Then he goes on, it says, seasoned with salt. I had some great uh, French fries this past week and it was just perfectly seasoned with salt and pepper and I really enjoyed them. Just think about speech that would be just perfectly tenderized, perfectly salted, perfectly seasoned, so that now it comes across to people in a way that they can readily receive what you're trying to convey to them. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart, and this was read already in our scripture reading, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. That's not quick, is it? The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. I mean, they're just ready to talk. The thing about evil people is they do a lot of talking and they shouldn't. They just pour out stuff all the time. It's on TV all the time. You turn to a station, you can just turn to the next commercial, next commercial. Oh my goodness, there's nothing good to watch here at all. They're just pouring out evil things and uh, you just wish that they would be the ones to keep their mouths quiet, right? Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth. You mean I don't just become a Christian and then, wow, I get zapped by the Holy Spirit and now my mouth is just beautiful. No, you have to take time to instruct your mouth. Mouth, that's not the way to talk. That didn't help all that well. Next time when you're in this situation, what you're going to say, how many of you have done that in your mind? You're like, well, that wasn't the best thing to say and you're walking away from a conversation. Exactly. Teach your mouth. And then another proverb, Proverbs 16, 24, the next verse says, pleasant words are honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. You say, but we don't want to be too sweet. We're tough biblical people here. We want to speak truth. No, you want to speak truth sweetly, as, as sweetly as you can, and only get to the rebuking, reproving part when you're kind of forced to by the fact that they're just foolish and not listening to anything. All right? In other words, when you're standing with people, you're not going to be like you're preaching a sermon like I am now. Because I'm preaching to all of you, and some of you need to be conked on the head, and some of you need to be encouraged. When you're standing in front of someone, find out what their needs are and talk to them according to what their need is. That's the transformation of the tongue. And really, we haven't even gotten there. I just wanted to give that a little bit to you before we entered into this, because today's message is kind of tough. It's kind of hard to listen to. Why must it be that we work so hard on our tongues? It seems like it's a lifetime of construction. You know, it's like the tongue is always under construction. It's like those places you drive around the beltway or something. They're always under construction. Can't they get those orange cones out of there for once? Particularly, you know, at uh, the busy hour, at rush hour. Well, because the tongue is so powerful and because the tongue is hard, hard, should we say impossible to tame. But the tongue continues to have immense influence. 
And as I said, not just the tongues of leaders, your tongues. Your tongues have influence. Think about that. So let's get into our text, James 3, and may God use this practical teaching to spur us on to practice our faith with our mouths. What comes out of our mouths should be an expression of the fact that we're born-again Christians. And hopefully it edifies others and advances truth. James 3, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 12. We're in the 2 to 8 section, but just so everyone again gets the context. James 3, 1 to 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Behold the power and influence of the tongue. Clearly how we wield our tongues, how we use our tongues will affect others greatly and it will affect them for good or for ill. In this passage, we're seeing the indications of the power of the tongue. Last time we went over the first indication. What's that? Well, the reason why we know the tongue is so powerful is because only a perfect man can bridle his tongue. Look at verse 2 again. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a fully mature man. He's been brought to completion in his character, in other words. Able to bridle the whole body as well. His entire soma, his body. If one could just control his tongue, it would prove how mature he is already. It would show how far advanced in sanctification he was. And then he'd be able to control every other part of his body. Worried about the tummy, worried about the hands, worried about the eyes, take care of the tongue. The power and influence that's needed to control the tongue, if you can do that, you can do the whole body. That's quite a statement of the influence of the tongue. Now, we could ask ourselves, is James kind of using some hyperbole here? Is he, is he exaggerating just to sort of make a sermonic point? You know, it's his homiletics getting out of hand here. The tongue, yeah, we know the tongue's powerful, but is it really that powerful? Well, no, he did not overstate it, and he wants to show with some illustrations his point, and he wants to even take this further, and that's where we're going to go in this passage. We're going to go deeper and deeper into just how powerful the tongue is. So hang in there. Here we go. Second indication of the power of the tongue is that the little tongue boasts of great things. The little tongue in size, the size of the tongue is small, boasts great things. This is in verses three through five. Let's take a look at that again. Look back at verse three. 
Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. First illustration. And he's giving two illustrations here. And all he's trying to say at this point in time is not that the tongue is bad, but that the tongue is very powerful. In other words, small things sometimes can influence great things. Sometimes small things are in control of great things. That doesn't happen all the time, but in this case it does. And so we can't just say, well, because it's small, it's not really that big of a deal. It is, and that's what James is trying to say. If we put the bits into the horse's mouth, that's illustration number one from the familiar world of horses. Something, and by the way, this is written as if they're quite familiar with this in those days as well. They understood how to care for and take care of horses. It's something that they saw around them. They were familiar with this illustration. That word for bit in this verse is related to the verb for bridle in the previous verse. Together, they were effective in guiding and and moving and controlling these big animals, these horses, as it's done today too. The bit works by applying pressure to the horse's mouth in different locations, and the horse doesn't like that, so to avoid the discomfort, the horse will cooperate and turn his head in the direction that the, the, the rider wants. There are today, as there were then, many different kinds of bits. Nowadays, uh, as I understand it, they're made of stainless steel or nickel-plated or copper. In the ancient days, we even have indication way back into B.C. days, hundreds of years even before James, that some of the bits were made of metal, different kinds of metal, but they would also use bone or wood or leather and other things. But the clear picture here is you have a very large horse, And it's controlled by a very small bit along with a bridle in the mouth. And by controlling the pressure in the horse's mouth, you control the head of the horse. And by controlling the direction of the head of the horse, you control the whole body as well. And you move the horse where you want to go. I'm definitely not a horse expert. One horse blog that I went to put it this way. Bits don't train horses. Only training trains horses. And a horse will move only as well as his rider uses his seat, legs, and hands. But the bit is a crucial part in that training and control of these beasts. Horses are much larger than human beings, you know that. Their um, average horse is 800 to 1,000 pounds or so. Some varieties get double that weight. Those who work regularly with horses know that they have a will of their own and that they can be quite dangerous at times. They can be unruly beasts, brutish And particularly when something happens, if they're spooked or something like that, it may be very hard to control them. Many have been seriously injured or even killed working around horses or enjoying horses. Generally, you don't control a horse without a bit and a bridle, and every kind of horse needs some kind of control like that. It's interesting that a Greek playwright named Sophocles from the 5th century BC, he wrote in ancient Athens, Supposedly, he wrote some 123 ancient plays. There's only seven of them have survived into the modern world. But he wrote this. I know that spirited horses are broken by the use of a small bit. So there he is in the 400s BC, and they're talking about the same management of horses. So they knew. The ancients knew this. They knew that it was not great power which controlled the horse, but it was great understanding how to manipulate them. Even a small girl could sit on the back of a horse and if she knew what to do and how to handle that could control this superior animal. But please notice the purpose in all of this, the aim in the bit and the bridle was to secure the horse's obedience. That was what was trying to happen here. Didn't just want to control the mouth of the horse, but 
the whole animal, the direction the animal would go and how fast it would go, where it would turn and when it would stop. And so the point here is that little can control large when understanding is applied to the use of the little. The larger things are not always in control, so don't think of them that way. And so the point is, with the tongue, that is true as well. Though it is tiny, it controls so much, so much. So much of life is controlled by our tongues. So much of what transpires in our life is controlled by the tongue. So much of what happens in your life, the way your life plays out is controlled by your tongue. If you would think about what you're saying and be more careful with it, you'd see God work and direct your life that way. But let's go to the second illustration just to reinforce this. Look at verse four. In verse four, he says, look at the ships or behold the ships also though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Now here, James kind of says, look, it's interesting, he says, look again, behold. The Greek term is idu. It just means, you know, look up and behold something else. And almost like they lived near the sea, some of the ones that James would be writing to here would be around the Mediterranean Sea and they'd seen the scene before on the sea big ocean-going, sea-going vessels. He says, look up, look at that big ship out there on on the uh, sea, on the Mediterranean Sea. Look at the size of that. Who controls that? And he gets them to think about the stern of the boat and the little rudder that is in the back there and says, you see, it's going to go wherever the pilot says for it to go. Another great example. You know, um, the ancients, uh, their ships were not quite as big as ours are. I mean, their ships... uh, We have giant ships these days, but the principle still is the same, isn't it? But there's some indication, and archaeology is revealing more and more interesting facts about the fact that these these ancients actually made larger ships than sometimes we realize. Now, we're not talking about Noah's Noah's, uh, Ark. We're not uh, talking about that. That wasn't really made to, to cruise around. It was meant to survive all the tidal waves that were coming at that time. And that was 450 feet long. That was a long, long boat. But if you think about the size of ancient ships... For an ancient man, as he's standing on the shore or he's at the docks and he's looking at the size of these ships, they were immense. Some of them may have been a few hundred feet long. In Acts 27, 37, it says that there were 276 people on board the ship which Paul was taking to Rome. He was being escorted, of course. He was under arrest and he was going to Rome. 276 people, that's a decent-sized boat. So for ancient man, as they looked at these ships, this was humongous, a lot larger than a, a horse. You try to control a horse by hand, you know, and you don't have any other control, just your hands. Well, good luck with that. That's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard. Now imagine a a ship out in the water and all you have is your hands to control it. And that's the only way you're going to try to move it around. Well, you'll just be dragged along. You might even be crushed under its weight if you're not careful. But please notice it's not just the ship's size that makes it so hard to control, but even more, there's an element that is brought along here. Notice that James adds the reality of the ship on the water, out on the ocean, and what happens down on the ocean, what happens by the sea. You've been out to the beach, you know, and that is the winds become stronger out there, right? There's, no, there's nothing to hold the winds back, and so they blow and they blow, and sometimes they become very strong, very, very harsh kinds of winds. Now you think of a ship being blown along by the winds. What's going to control that? Well, a horse, of course, is a beast. It has its own will. It wants to eat here. It wants to turn there. It sees something that it likes over there, and it has to be controlled. A ship doesn't have a will of its own. But now the wind kind of comes in and becomes the will that drives the ship. 
driven by strong gusts or prevailing winds. Ferocious storms can even develop over the sea. In Acts 27, 4, referring again to that trip that Paul had to take from, uh, from Palestine to Rome, they had to seek shelter along Cyprus and then Crete and some other islands on their way through the Mediterranean because of these big contrary winds. And Paul warned them and warned them, and then eventually that ship was shipwrecked and they came up on the shore on Malta. But great winds could batter and destroy ships as they do even now. The tongue is so small, how can it cause such a problem? Well today, Pastor Tom took a look at this very topic as he continued to work through the book of James today. Pastor Tom reminded you of the small but powerful tool used to direct a horse, a bit, a simple piece of metal. The same is true for a ship. Giant feats of mechanical engineering are set adrift, yet they're steered by a simple and small rudder, and your tongue, though small, is just as powerful. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Lee, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. So if your tiny tongue is so powerful, what should it be used for? Pastor Tom will continue this topic when you join him next time on Discover Hope. You could use your tongue for many things, to give praise or to insult someone. You could spread joy or you could spread hate. You could also use it to tell the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus' love for everyone. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hopebiblechurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.